Please take your Bibles and open again to Matthew chapter 2. What really happened when Jesus was born? People that never go to church and don't claim to be Christians have very little idea except maybe what they've seen in some schmaltzy Christmas movie, which is not very accurate, and they wouldn't even know where to find the truth in the Bible. And if they did, they may not understand it, and a lot of that applies even to Christians in churches. What does the Bible really say about the birth of Jesus Christ and the events surrounding it? This time of the year, there'll be weird theories circulating in those magazines at the checkout stand. I saw one the other day, something like the real Jesus. What does the Dead Sea Scrolls say? Well, what does the Bible say? The Bible is God's inspired word and it tells us exactly what happened and why when Jesus was born. This morning we're going to look at the nativity according to Matthew chapter 2 and next week the nativity according to Luke in Luke chapter 2. So we'll go through these verses, I'll explain them, and also disprove some of the weird misunderstandings and ignorance, and then we will concentrate on the meaning and the deeper meaning of why it happened just like the Bible says. Verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. It says, after these things, that is, after Jesus was born, and when you dovetail Matthew and Luke, you find out the wise men and the shepherds did not come at the same time. I know you may have a little nativity scene sitting on top of your television or underneath the Christmas tree, but no, the shepherds came on the night Jesus was born, and then they went back to their sheep. After Jesus was born, a few days later, here come the wise men within that first week. Who were these wise men? Or were they wise men? Or is it like the hymn, We Three Kings? No, they were not kings. The New Testament was written in Greek, and God inspired Matthew to use the word magoi in the singular magos, from which we get the word magicians, but they were not conjurers. They were a combination of wise men, the philosophers. They did practice astrology, so they would notice this star in a special way. They were the philosopher priests of an ancient Persian religion called Zoroastrianism, and that religion is still around in different parts of the world. So they were philosophers, sages, and in this unusual religion of Zoroastrianism, they worshiped two gods, a god of light and a god of darkness, and that the god of light would one day send a son into the world to conquer the evil god of darkness. You see, it's kind of a spinoff of ancient Judaism mixed in with a little bit of Christianity. But it was mixed in with a lot of paganism as well. They had a, a fixation on water and light and fire. But they were not kings. 
they were what some call king makers. They were the ones that pulled the strings behind the scenes, very influential. We also learned from ancient records in archaeology that when they showed up, they wore Persian clothes, coned hats, slippers that curled at the end of the toes, long robes with many different colors and gold chains, unlike the people of Israel. We don't know their names. Tradition gives them names like Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar. We don't know how many. Maybe there were three because they brought three gifts. There could have been more that brought the three gifts and a lot of other legends that we can dismiss. Where did they come from? We know that they came to Jerusalem, but where did they come from? It says they came from the east where they saw the star. And east is obviously east of Israel, but which country? Arabia to the southeast? Maybe Babylon. Maybe Assyria, maybe way over there to the east in India. But actually, there's none of those. They came from Persia, which would be modern-day Iran. How do we know that? Look at their name. They're the Magi, and that was a group of people specifically in Persia. They're mentioned in the book of Daniel, these wise men that opposed Daniel and tried to have him killed by the the den of lions, but that's where they came from, the Medo-Persian Empire that had defeated Babylon and were challenging Rome. Now, this is significant. The Persian Empire was now at its height, and so was the Roman Empire from the west, but neither one was able to conquer the other, and so when these men from Persia showed up, everybody was wondering, are these spies are these coming in to do reconnaissance? Are they going to invade and take over the Romans? And Jews would say, yeah, down with the Romans. Yeah, but what about the Persians? And so everybody here was troubled. Now, they came from Persia, and that's where Daniel had been a few hundred years later. And Daniel had almost certainly left written copies of his prophecies. And Jews that had been in exile in Persia that later came back to Israel... Some Jews stayed back there with copies of the rest of the Hebrew Bible. Why do I say that? These wise men would have been acquainted with the Jewish writings. And they said, well, Zoroastrianism says only so much, but the Hebrew Bible tells us about a true God that is greater than the evil God of darkness, Satan, but the true God will send the Messiah. That's as much as they could deduce from their religion. But when they read in the Bible, they said there's even more. For example, Daniel had prophesied when that Messiah would come. The rest of the Hebrew Bible didn't say that. Remember, Daniel said that from the decree to let the Jews go back to Israel, there'd be 490 years, 70 times 7. So they knew when it would come, but not the exact day. Are you with me? They were waiting for a sign from God to say, now is the time, get on your camels and go. And so God sent them the sign with the star in the sky. Now what about this star? Verse 1 says, we have seen his star. Excuse me, verse 2, we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship this newborn king. What was this star? I've been fascinated by this for many, many years. I've read whole books, dozens of articles and commentaries what was the star? Maybe you've wondered. 
Well, the Greek word is aster, A-S-T-E-R, from which we get the word star. But in Greek, it simply meant any light that's up in the sky, such as at night, moonlight, a comet, or even the sun in the daytime. It just simply meant a light in the, in the sky. It could refer to planets. And so people have guessed and said, well, it's a comet or a supernova, a meteor, a conjunction of planets. I was very popular. Johannes Kepler suggested that, and many astronomers today say, yeah, when two stars have a conjunction, it becomes very bright, and then they later meet up again and becomes even a triple conjunction. Very popular theory. Others have suggested it's some sort of astrological constellation. Others say it was a myth, and some have even said it was a UFO, and the wise men were astronauts from another. Somebody has been watching too many science fiction movies. But here are the clues right from the Bible. The star appeared to the wise men, and evidently only these wise men saw it. There's no indication that people in Israel or back in Persia or anywhere in between saw it, let alone interpret it. So it appeared to them, it guided them, meaning it moved, and then it disappeared when they came to Jerusalem, and then when they left, it reappeared, and specifically, it guided them to the specific house where Jesus was. That's what the Bible says, and that would disprove all the other theories except one. Does the Bible give us any other previous examples of a bright light appearing, moving, and guiding people? Yes, several times in the Old Testament, the bright light that the Jews called the Shekinah, the light of God's glory, for example, it appeared and guided the Jews in the wilderness for 40 years. It would appear in the Holy of Holies. It would move in various places. And specifically, the book of Ezekiel says, by way of prophecy, he saw the bright light of God's glory rise from the temple and then move off to the east and one day would come back from the east to Israel. And that light would be the glory of God. It departed when Israel fell into apostasy, but would reappear. So you see, this was a fulfillment of that prophecy. It's the only one that meets the criteria of what Matthew says, the glory of God. There's more. On the night Jesus was born, Luke 2 says, the angel appeared with that bright light. So here's the glory of God coming back to Israel and appearing to the shepherds and to the angels and to the wise men. Now all these other explanations are simply trying to explain by natural means that which is supernatural. Can't be done. The supernatural has various laws that the natural law does not have. It suspends gravity, for example, and other such things. You can't explain or explain away the supernatural by means of science in the natural. This was a supernatural event, the Shekinah glory of God. Now perhaps the wise men also had a copy of the book of Numbers. In Numbers 24, 17, there's a prophecy, quote, a star shall come out of Jacob, that's Israel, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Scepter, ruling. This is saying there'll be a star and the king one day. 
So probably these wise men put all this together, and when the sign of the star appeared, they said, that's it, get on your camels, get gifts, and off they went to Israel. And it says here when they appeared, they didn't know exactly where to go. Verse 2 says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So they asked for directions, and they said, we saw the star and have come to worship him. And people probably said, what star? Who are you? You're Persians. By the way, how could they communicate? Persians had a different language, Farsi, like our brother from Persian speaks Farsi. That's Persian language. They probably all knew Aramaic, which is like a Semitic language. Anybody that knew Hebrew or Farsi or Arabic could speak. So they say, where is this king of the Jews, this Messiah, this Christ? We have come to worship him. And they believed he was the king of the Jews, the Messiah. And if you look closely, you'll see they believe he is not the son of Herod, but he is the son of God. But nobody knew what they were talking about. Verse 3, Herod the king somehow heard about this. Word got back to him. And he was troubled by this and all Jerusalem with them. Let me introduce wicked king Herod to you. He was not a Jew. He was not a Roman. Certainly not a Greek or a Persian. He was from a neighboring country of Edom that had always been in rivalry with Israel. And so the king in Israel was not a Jew. He was a puppet king that Caesar Augustus had appointed over the Jews. And he was answerable only to Caesar. And so now he is the king and he hears about another king being born. Let me tell you something else about him. He's called Herod the king, but he could be called Herod the great murderer. He was cruel. He was jealous. He wanted to protect his kingdom. He murdered his wife, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, and three of his sons. And he also made a law that when he died, the Jewish leaders would slay all the Jew uh, the Romans would slay the Jewish leaders. By the way, they didn't. Word got back to Augustus about this, and he very wryly said it would be safer to be Herod's pig than to be anybody in his family. And so here he's already worried. It says here he's troubled, and he's already beginning to plot the death of this baby, if there is a baby. Herod was made king of the Jews. Jesus was born king of the Jews. He would be the true king of the Jews. Now look at the context. Back in chapter 1, we see the genealogy of Jesus. And it goes all the way back from Abraham and ends with Joseph, but Jesus was not the biological son of Joseph. He was the adoptive son. But Joseph was in the direct line from David. God had given a prophecy and a promise to David that one day the Messiah will be born from the tribe of Judah and the line of David. What am I saying? That literal king of the Jews would be Jesus. So this isn't just saying he's the Messiah. He is the true Messiah, son of God, the king of the Jews. And evidently the Wise men realized this, but this was totally foreign to wicked King Herod. Look at the next verse here. Verse 4, when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ, 
the Messiah, was to be born. So he didn't just listen to the wise men from the east. He called in his own wise men, the chief priests and the scribes, because the Roman wise men wouldn't have known anything about this. So he says, get the Jewish leaders, those theologians called scribes. And so he asked them, I've heard tell that you believe in a coming Messiah that will be king of the Jews. Uh, where's he going to be born? Now, he's not tipping his hand. He's curious. And so they consulted the Bible. And they would have known the answer. They said, well, duh, it's in Bethlehem. Because they quote here Micah 5.2, that a ruler that will shepherd God's people will be born. By the way, would you have known where that prophecy was? Now, here's a lesson. The wise men had been guided by signs and providence with the star, but that wasn't enough to lead them to Jesus. God works in mysterious ways in people's lives, through providence, for example. Something happens in their life and they realize there is a God. Why am I still alive? They hear something vague about Christians. Maybe they work with a Christian and they get curious. They find themselves strangely drawn by these unusual things, but they need more to lead them to Jesus. What do they need? They need the Bible. The wise men needed to hear from the word of God where Jesus was. We need to be like these scribes and tell people what the Bible says, who Jesus is, and the way to get to know him personally and to be saved. <clears throat> so they found out from the wise men, from the, uh, from the scribes and the Pharisees but you notice according to this, it goes on to say Bethlehem, Judea, and so forth. And they would go, but the scribes did not go with them. Does that strike you as a little bit odd? The wise men went, but these very scribes, these Bible scholars said, we know where he is to be born, but they didn't go to Bethlehem. You would think that at least one of them would be curious and say, Men, let's get together in a huddle. You know, it might be this is the Messiah we've been waiting for. Let's send at least one person. They didn't. Why? Maybe they were afraid of Herod. Maybe thought, they thought it was a trap. Maybe they thought that if they found him, they'd be in trouble. If they didn't find him, they'd be in trouble. They didn't trust Herod. But the main reason is they didn't believe it. They didn't believe that the Messiah was born, so they didn't bother to go. Now, this is an important point you see over and over in the book of Matthew, and that's this. Those that you would have naturally expected to believe in Jesus usually did not. The religious leaders, like these very wise men uh, advising Herod, they knew their Bibles. But very few of them really believed in Jesus when Jesus grew up and preached and taught and did miracles. Very few of them believed. On the other hand, the surprise is that so many in Israel you didn't expect to believe, did believe. I like the verse that says the common people heard Jesus gladly. And not only the common people, but the outcasts, the drunks, the tax collectors, the thieves, the prostitutes, many of them believed in Jesus. So there's a paradox. Those you would expect to believe usually didn't. Those that you wouldn't expect to believe usually did. And that principle applies today. The high and the mighty, the politicians, the wealthy, the rich and famous, the entertainers, very few of them truly believe in Jesus. Oh, politicians will throw us a bone at Christmas and say they believe. 
Very, very few of them do. On the other hand, a lot of people in society that are the outcasts usually do. I could name dozens that write to me from prison. Hardened criminals became Christians. You should read their letters. Ones that have no background. You'd think they're beyond hope. They believed in Jesus. They believed in grace. And they are testifying and they're teaching the word of God in prison. So the pattern is, again, those that you would expect didn't, those you didn't expect usually do. So these Jewish leaders didn't, and later they'd probably be sorry they didn't. Then also, back to the story here, these wise men from the east came and believed. You see, the Jews would have said, there's no hope for the Gentiles, they're dogs, don't even bother them, don't tell them. But God led them, and this is a case in point today. Now we come to verses 7 to 10. The journey continues, and the plot is hatched. Verse 7, Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. Now this is clever, devious actually, evil. He didn't want to tip his hand and say, I'm going to kill that baby. So he says, where's this baby? They say Bethlehem. Okay, we know the place. I'll handle it from there. And he said, well, when did that star appear? Maybe that'll give us some guidance as to how old he is. Uh, when did you say? By the way, when did they see the star for the first time? Some say it was a long time. No, it was probably just within a few weeks earlier because they came on, tri on camels. And Lawrence of Arabia said a camel traveling, you know, so many hours a day could have so many miles in a day. So they probably came within just three weeks. And so he says, okay, it's just a very little baby born down in Bethlehem. So then he says in verse 8, go and search carefully for this young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may also come and worship him. That's what you call a bald-faced lie. He didn't plan to worship the baby. You know what he wanted to do. He wanted to kill that baby because he was jealous. He says, no, no. So, he was thinking, if word got around about that baby, they might think that, yes, he is the promised Messiah. They're going to now all get together and have a revolution and try to throw the Romans out, including Herod, the puppet king of the Romans. So he says, let's just nip this in the bud. Let's stop that baby right now while he's a baby and then no more rumors about him being a Messiah. So he, he says, I'm going to go and worship him. So you find out where he is, but get the address and come back and then I'll go and I've got gifts. No, there's a lie. Just like there are people today that claim to be religious, claim to be seeking after God. They're not seeking for God. Romans 3.11 says there is none that seeketh after God. People get religious to find an excuse to run from God, to hide in their self-righteousness, even under the cloak of religiosity, saying we're going to worship God. They're really not much better than wicked King Herod. And so he makes this plot, and so off they go. Verse 9, when they heard the king, they departed. In other words, they knew which way direction, go to the southeast of Jerusalem, just maybe two or three, four miles down to the little town of Bethlehem. And as soon as they get outside the city boundaries, look at the verse, behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them 
And now it's guiding them. It reappears. Remember I said it appeared, it disappeared. Now it reappears and it leads them to the exact house. Those other explanations would never account for how could a supernova or a comet lead them to the direct house had to be the glory of God. Now here's another lesson. Follow the light you have and God will give you more light. God had given them the supernatural light of his glory in the sky and then it disappeared. They needed the light of the Bible. They followed it and it led them to Jesus together with that supernatural light. How does that apply today? There are non-Christians that get curious or they get worried that they're going to die and go to hell and they say, if there is a God, how do I know him? I've heard about Jesus. God does things in their life. Then they find the Bible and they learn more, maybe a Christian witnesses to them. And as they follow the light God has given them, God gives them more light. And in God's timing, he'll bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. It says here they came and they found him. Found him exactly where the scriptures had said and where the star led. But notice something else. Backtracking verse 10. When the star appeared, they saw the star and rejoiced, not just with joy, not just with great joy, but with exceedingly great joy. My guess is that they shouted and said something in Persian language. Maybe they did a little dance. They were really happy. They were hugging. The star men were almost there. The closer a person gets to the Lord Jesus, the more he experiences heavenly joy. And especially when they arrive and see Jesus. They came and they saw. But what did they do when they got there? Look at verse 10. When they come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. The young child. Isaiah 9, 6 predicted this child and says, Unto us a child is given. And it says that they saw Mary, but they didn't come to see Mary. By the way, where's Joseph? Luke records Joseph on the night Jesus was born. He's not mentioned here. He is mentioned in chapter 1. Perhaps he's out making other arrangements to travel down to Egypt. Maybe he's buying groceries. We just don't know, but he's not there. By the way, I like to think when he came back, when the wise men had left, I imagine Mary said, Honey, you'll never imagine who came and visited just while you were out and tell him, help tell him about the wise men. But the wise men come in and see Mary, called his mother, not the mother of God, as the Catholic Church says. God has no mother, but yet this was God in the flesh, so in a sense, she is the mother of the one that is God. But notice particularly what happens. This is where it gets theologically and religiously very significant. They saw the young child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They came, and that speaks of faith. They were not on a blind man's mission. They wanted to come to believe in this child. They believed the prophecies of Daniel and of Isaiah and of Numbers. They saw him, and that's not just with their eyes. This is the seeing of faith. They understood the significance of this, and they responded in the appropriate way. Notice, they fell down and they worshiped. 
These were august men that could have their way anywhere back in Persia. They were used to having other people bow down before them. Now they bow down. I find that very moving. They humbled themselves. And it says they worshipped. They adored him. They praised him. We don't know what they said. Maybe they were just awestruck in silence. But they worshipped. And they gave gifts. The significant word is they worshipped him. That is the essence of what happens when a person comes and knows the Lord Jesus. He believes and he will automatically thank him and worship him and praise him. Julius Caesar had said in a previous generation, his motto in Latin, Vini, Vidi, Vici, I came, I saw, I conquered. These wise men would have said, Vini, Vidi, Vini, Vidi, Adoramus. We came, we saw, we worshipped. And that's what we should do as well. We come to Jesus, we see him by faith, we submit to him, and we worship him and adore him that night and for the rest of our lives. Then it says that they opened up their treasures. Notice they didn't give just something cheap. They gave their treasures. Centuries earlier, David said, I will not sacrifice to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Look, if you will, at the gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What's the significance of this? Gold, very valuable. That's what you'd give to a king, the king of the Jews. And probably this would be used later by Joseph to help support his family when they went to Egypt and then back to Nazareth. The gift of frankincense, what's that? Well, that was from Arabia. It's incense. It has a certain smell to it. And both in the Bible and elsewhere, it was used in worship. Some churches today still use incense. It's not necessary, but it would symbolize that as the smoke of the incense goes up in a sweet aroma, so do our prayers go up to God and he is pleased with it. So it stands for worship, and in the temple this would be burnt by the priests. This is showing that the wise men believed he's not only the king, he is a great priest. Book of Hebrews says he is our unique high priest. And then there's the myrrh. What's myrrh? Well, myrrh was used in various ways. For example, two things, and they had something in common. Again, this is very significant. We're going deep on this. Myrrh was usually associated with death. For example, you remember when Jesus was on the cross and in such pain, God had allowed the Jews, this is in the book of Proverbs, to give somebody a pain-killing drink so that he would die without the pain of crucifixion. So they dipped a sponge into this liquid and put it on a stick and put it up to Jesus. What was in that liquid? Gall, vinegar, and myrrh. This would formulate a, uh, an analgesic, a painkiller, but Jesus didn't take it. But notice that myrrh in the Jewish mind is always associated with death and something else. After Jesus died and they went to bury him, the ladies went carrying certain spices, not to embalm Jesus, but to cover the body as it was buried so that the sweet, sweet smell of the myrrh and these other things would be like perfume that would overcome the smell of a dead body. 
That's what the tradition was. They got there, and they had to come back on Sunday morning to finish the job. So my point is, myrrh was usually associated with death. So these wise men showing up with myrrh, it somehow, it's, it, on the surface, it looks on, that would be like giving the baby a bottle of formaldehyde to embalm it. You wouldn't do that. They saw the significance. The baby is the king. He's the priest. He will be the sacrifice that will die. You see the deeper significance of this. Somebody else saw it 30-something years later. Just a few days before Jesus did die and was offered that drink on the cross, most of his followers couldn't understand that Jesus would die. They said, well, he's the king. He's the Messiah. He's not supposed to die. Peter even rebuked Jesus for saying he would die. One person saw what others didn't. Mary of Bethany. And when Jesus was sitting at the table, she took a, a bottle of very, very expensive perfume called Spikenard and anointed Jesus. And they thought this was a waste. Jesus said, she's anointing my body for my death. The priests saw the same thing. This baby would grow up and die. That's why he's the Messiah and the Savior. So they gave these special gifts. To Jesus. And ever since then, Christians like to give gifts to other Christians at Christmas. Let me ask you this question. If you'd been one of those wise men, ladies, one of the wise women, what gift would you want to give Jesus? A few years ago, I asked that question to about 40 of the prison inmates that write to me. What would you like to give? You should, should have read their answers. One of them said, I'd give them a pillow because... Don't you know that straw in the manger would kind of poke him? Give him something comfortable. Another one said, bring him a blanket. One of them said, I'd bring my guitar and sing Silent Night. Sounds like the little drummer boy wanting to serenade Jesus. What would you have given to Jesus? What's most valuable to you? Keys to your car? Ownership papers for your house? Maybe, like me, your college degrees. What else would you want to give? Jesus wants everything. That's not the main thing. You know what he really wants from you? Something everybody here has. You say, I don't have gold, frankincense. I certainly don't have any myrrh. What you have is what he wants most from you, your heart. When these men gave this, just like Mary of Bethlehem, that was symbolic of their love gift of their heart. That's what Jesus wants from you the most. Not your money. What, what does he need a car for? He doesn't need your keys. He wants your heart. Why? Because he loves you. He gives you his heart with love. He wants your heart of love. Love desires love. And that's something we can all give this Christmas and every day. You've heard the phrase, the gift that keeps on giving. God gave us the greatest gift, Jesus, and he keeps giving us love, justification, heaven in Jesus. We are to give him our heart and everything on top of that. And it says here they worshiped in humility, bowing. By the way, in the Middle East, even to this day, they don't just bow like this. They bow on their hands and knees with their face to the ground. Picture these august Priests, these Zoroastrian philosophers, these kingmakers, bowing down before just a little baby you could hold in one hand. According to the Bible, 
Worship and such bowing belongs only to God. Jesus said in Matthew 4, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And several people bowed before Peter, for example. John before an angel, and Peter and the angel said, Stand up, I am, I am only a man, worship God. There's only one person we should kneel before, and that's God. These wise men did this because they saw he was God in the flesh, not the son of Joseph, not a mere king, certainly not the son of Herod. In bowing and worshiping him, they were saying he is God. Have you bowed before this, Jesus? Have you submitted to him? Everybody that ever has lived will, in one way or another, bow before this Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 says, on that grand day of the exaltation of Jesus in heaven, associated with the judgment day, it says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Every knee on earth, in heaven, but underneath the earth, will bow in submission to him in one of two ways. Christians, like the wise men, willingly bow before Jesus. It is our privilege. Whether you bow on your bed or on your carpet, in your heart you bow before him, you willingly submit to him and you worship him. This is not some optional extra that you can become a Christian and never submit. You submit and you continue to submit, not grudgingly, but lovingly and willingly. We do it, and oh, the privilege that when we see him in heaven, as it says in the book of Revelation, we will fall down before him and give our crowns to him. But I said everyone will, even the non-Christians, even Herod, Pontius Pilate, even Judas and the demons of hell will be forced to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, not in salvation, but in damnation. They will sign their own death warrant as it will. Which are you? Have you submitted? Have you bowed the knee before the Lord Jesus and acknowledged him as king, priest, prophet, and as Lord? Look again at this. It says they saw the young child and they gave these gifts and worshipped him. This is what they came is to see him. And again, this wasn't just with the eyes but with the heart, the Bible speaks about seeing with the heart. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas after he had risen from the dead. He said, Thomas, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those that have not seen with their eyes, and yet they believe. These not only saw with their eyes, but with their hearts. And we need to do both as well. They recognized he was the Messiah, the God-man. Imagine if you can them bowing before him and they could not take their eyes off that baby every little mo movement of his little feet or blinking of the eye they were looking at every little detail and they were realizing this isn't just another baby this is God in the flesh how can it be God who is spirit that is omnipotent now is a helpless little baby here how can this be but it is and that goes through the heart of every true believer we realize the truth of 1 Timothy 3.16. God was manifested in the flesh, that baby. And we don't see him with our eyes now, but with our heart and with our mind. Do you see him and do you submit and do you worship? For when you see him in your heart as he really is, you are drawn to him in a holy worship. They were not just looking, they were gazing. This is the look of wondering love and of awe and a holy curiosity. 
And as they knelt before this baby, it was like time stood still. What we experience when we're caught up in a season of worship, it's like we're halfway between earth and heaven. Jesus is that ladder between earth and heaven. And it's by faith. We don't experience this today by looking at pictures, crucifixes, and such statues. It's by faith, by the word of God, gives us the word pictures. And when the word of God comes alive, we bow and we see Jesus. As it says twice in the book of Hebrews, look unto Jesus. Oh, brethren, to have been like those wise men and to see not only with our hearts, but with our eyes. The privilege they had, remember Jesus once said to the apostles, he said, I tell, I verily I say to you, many wise men and kings long to see what you see with your very eyes, but they didn't get to see it. These wise men did. And they saw it. We sing in one of our hymns, Come adore on bended knee. I don't know about you, but I would give everything I've ever owned or ever would own for five minutes to see Jesus there in the manger on that day. But if you're a believer, you will see him in heaven. Not in the manger, but on the throne. Not veiled in flesh the Godhead. See, we will see him without a veil. We will see him in his resplendent glory as the Lord of the universe, the risen Christ that died for us on the cross. We will see him and these men just gazed upon him for maybe an hour, we will see Jesus face to face, the beatific vision for all eternity. What a great privilege. And that's what's hinted at here. They saw, we will see. They worshipped, we will worship. They gave gifts, we will give crowns in our hearts. We don't know how long they lingered there. But the time would come, Mary would probably say, thank you so much for coming, but the baby needs to get its rest now. And they would have said, yes, we understood. And I like the picture that they backed off like this, still seeing him. And when they came to the door, they took one last glance at him, left and got on their camels and left. Then verse 12 concludes and says, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. They were warned probably by an angel in the dream, didn't see the star again, and so they went back another way. Now there's significance in that. These men were changed. When we come to Jesus and believe in him, we are changed completely. And we go our way another way than the way we came. We don't go back to a sinful lifestyle. Sin becomes an exception, not the norm in our life. We go back changed. Whatever happened to these wise men? Well, they're old legends, but they saw what they could never forget. And I like to imagine when they got home and they called their wives, they said, you'll never believe what happened. The star, Herod, the baby, Oh, if you could have been there, honey. Oh, and the wives would say, tell us more, the little children. Tell us more, Daddy. What was it like? Tell us about the star. The star was not the main thing. The baby. They would have spread the gospel like the shepherds did. Brothers and sisters, let's also imitate these wise men. Let's come in faith. Let's behold 
Let's bow down. Let's worship. Let's give ourselves to him. You've probably heard the saying, wise men still seek him. I've got a better one. Wise men and women have found him. Let us pray. Father, you sent this baby into the world as the Messiah, the King, the Priest, the Lord, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you loved us and sent him to us. Help us all to respond like the wise men, to believe in him, to behold him and worship him, to submit to him and to praise him. For we pray in the name of this Lord Jesus. Amen.